In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. One difference between Jesus and everybody else is that Jesus does what he's told. If that sounds harsh, as if Jesus is being put upon, really it's not. Doing what he's told is not some sort of grim obedience to his heavenly Father. It is not slavery and it is not by force. Instead, Jesus' work is free and happy and hopeful, like the man in the gospel for today who scatters seed on the ground day after day, confident that the seed is good, that it will sprout and grow, and that it will bless those around him. Jesus does all that he does, not from force, but from divine love. In the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky tells a parable about that love, about Jesus coming back to earth, to Sevilla, at the time of the Spanish Inquisition. In Sevilla, Jesus teaches and he does some miracles and he is adored by the people for being surprising and mysterious and loving, for being pure. And then suddenly Jesus is arrested by the Inquisition, by the leaders of the church, who decide to burn him at the stake the very next day. Before the sentence is carried out, the head of the Inquisition, the Grand Inquisitor, visits Jesus in his cell and tells Jesus why he must die. Jesus must die because he is getting in the way. His love is changing people. It is setting people free. At the very time that the Inquisition, the church, is trying to enslave them and control them, when the Grand Inquisitor is finished, Jesus doesn't answer. Instead, Jesus simply kisses his enemy on the lips. And then in something of a miracle, the Grand Inquisitor lets Jesus go. You can see it. No matter what the stakes, Jesus carries on with his Father's work quite freely doing what he's told in love. For all of us, Jesus' love looks like this. Jesus is like a sower who scatters seed on all sorts of soil, generously and indiscriminately, hopefully and graciously and lavishly, even wastefully, just to be sure that no spot that no person is left behind. So everybody's in and nobody's out, that is the hope. Even the least, the little, the lost, the last, the dead, everybody's in, nobody's out, that's the hope. Even the blasphemous lips of the Grand Inquisitor. It's no wonder that folks adored him in Galilee and Sevilla and also here. Love and forgiveness that is always on offer. 
even when somebody is trying to crucify him or burn him at the stake. That is an otherworldly thing. Given the importance of Jesus' work, loving us in a way that forgives us and saves us and frees us for good, given the importance of that, Jesus' way of doing things may strike you as a bit surprising. Jesus' way is always to work through little things and weak things, like voice and water and bread and wine and the flesh of the Blessed Virgin Mother. Not through force, not through deception or fixes, not through back channels or connections, not by propaganda nor secret nor power nor execution. That is the stuff of grand inquisitors. And so it is the stuff of Satan. I know it sounds odd. If Jesus' goal is to save the world, then his way, a way that mimics scattered seeds, may seem to you like a feeble start. After all, seeds are ridiculously small, and they are blown by the wind, And even when they land, they disappear. They're covered. That is why in the church things seem so often weak or lost. And even why Jesus, as God in flesh, is so easy to capture and kill. But given the chance, those very same seeds do reappear. As blade as ear, as grain, and even as harvest. Or again, as mustard tree, insistent and invasive, and eventually large enough for shade and for birds. It's always important to remember that every seed is a little resurrection. For us, the natural temptation is to side with the Grand Inquisitor, a man who can get things done right now. Arrested, sentenced, and burned alive all in one day. That is the sort of efficiency that the world respects. For us, the temptation is to say, well, all this little Jesus stuff is fine for novels and for parables, but real life is different. I suggest to you that real life is not. Consider the Christians of Syria. This year it has been nothing but bad news for them. ISIS has advanced and the rich have fled. The poor, the weak, and the old have been left behind. There is very little now in the way of work, shelter, medicine, food, or money. The border to Lebanon is now mostly closed, and the Christians who are left feel trapped. The estimates are that 220,000 victims have been killed by the war, but another 350,000 have died from lack of food and health care. But most demonic, however, is that so many children have been killed. And now this has been quite well documented. That they have often been killed deliberately, 
tortured and murdered in front of their parents as a way to demoralize the parents and break the church in Syria. And yet when these Christians have been able to return home, to Malula, to Yabrud, to Homs, the very first thing that these Christians have done is to rebuild and reopen their churches. It's not because they've won any great victory or because they've suddenly become dominant, but because they know that the church is where Jesus sows his seed, where Jesus does his work, a work that is unnatural and divine, a work that is freeing and loving, even in suffering and in death. Their churches are the place where the living voice of Jesus speaks, where his icons keep a divine eye on them, where baptism still washes and forgives, where the Eucharist feeds the body and blood of one innocent victim to many innocent victims, bestowing love and life. The church is still the place where Christians learn to kiss their persecutors on the lips and then wait for what happens next. It is risky. But the Christians who live in the image of Christ, a Christ who seeds the world with things that are little and lavish, that are loving and divine and always hopeful, they live in the confidence that Jesus knows exactly what he is doing, even when they don't, in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.